In this episode, we're answering some of our listener questions. We'll be covering how the average investor on a low income can ensure that they don't buy a dud investment, how to avoid fad design trends that will date and devalue your property, timing your sale in preparation for retirement in a slowing market, and the pros and cons of buying a family compound. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecast report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. So let's kick off with our first question. It's from John. And I love it when you start a question with love your podcasts. Thank you very much, John. He said, love your podcasts, but I was a bit puzzled by this last one. So that was a few episodes ago, episode 230 with Evan Thornley, um, where he kept on about land and every farmer and most people know that land is valuable, according to John, uh, but not even those mums and dads investors who may have accrued good equity in their homes can invest upwards of a million dollars for a house or perhaps he's asking most can. Well, we know that most can't. So John's question is, he's probably very out of touch, he says, but even when I'm investing, the most I could manage were units and not house with gardens in decent areas. So how does that lead the future of those of us who could only invest in units or indeed only afford to live in a unit if we want to be where we can see those city lights and not want to see or tree change to beautiful but inaccessible places? Uh, he's even made a reference to my business. Even good deeds won't look at property under a million in Sydney, which would be a unit and fairly basic one at that. Now, when he's referring to the interview with Evan Thornley, that was all about this idea that not every property rises in value or falls in value at the same rate. And Evan had done some research on Melbourne uh, property performance, and he'd come up with some interesting uh, assessments and you know, I think sort of landed on some real truisms, but there were some things there that weren't necessarily universal in terms of their principles. So I guess to start off this, the talking point, Chris, using equity to borrow, invest a million dollars, how do people do it? How many people can do it? Look, it's probably pretty tough in 2022, but it wasn't tough in 2012 or 2013, 2014. It started to get really tough, you know, 15, 16, 17, um, 18, 19, so borrowing capacity has been falling, really. You could borrow 10, 12 times income back in 2014. I was just shocked. If you knew how to play the system and you could play it against different banks, et cetera. So affordability is two factors. Have you got um, the borrowing capacity and have you got the equity? Um, and equity, you know, if you've got a house, you know, potentially you don't need that equity to cover a 20% deposit. You could pay lenders mortgage insurance um, and cover a 10% deposit, for example, and then you're going to need 5% for stamp duty. So you know, I, I'd be surprised. It, also, prices would have been a lot cheaper back then. So I don't know when you're doing these numbers, etc. But it was pretty easy in the past to potentially stretch the houses. You know, if you knew how to play capacities and you had a reasonable amount of in, um, equity, I'd be surprised whether you could do it. In today's market, absolutely, it'd be tough. You know, you're probably looking at five times salary, you know, in 2022. Last year, it was probably six and a half, maybe seven times salary. Um, but that's way down from 10 or 12, right? So, it's really tough to, you know, um, buy, you know, you see your, your limited resource is borrowing capacity. 
And so what we're suggesting on this podcast is if you've got a limited resource, use it wisely, get quality assets. And um, I think when you were looking at unit performance in, say, Melbourne and Brisbane versus houses, it's, you know, chalk and cheese. Sydney, it's a bit of a, a basket case, you know, in the quality housing markets or the premium housing markets, units perform just like houses almost. Um, but in areas where there's high density, you know, they haven't done anything for, you know, a long time besides the 2015, 2017 boom. So fundamentally to go and borrow a million dollars you, you need some equity um and ideally that to cover 20 percent deposit on another property um but you also need borrowing capacity the rent itself doesn't allow you to go and buy properties it's it's a complete myth out there that you could just keep on building portfolios now you could have in the past maybe if you got super high yielding property um maybe under really relaxed borrowing capacity um you could potentially i still don't really believe you could but you know your rent if you times that rent you know let's say it's 600 dollars a week then you minus 20 percent off that 600 dollars a week so let's just call it 500 dollars a week if you times that by 52 weeks let's just call it 25 grand a year right if you times that by five that's how much money that rent it that rental income allows you to borrow so one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. Now, you're not going to be able to buy a $500 a week property for $125,000. So that extra borrowing capacity to go, to allow you to buy it, that comes from your income. Um, and so, you know, that's how you, you know, that's unfortunately the reality. And so it's not to say it's elitist, you can't buy a property and, you know, you have to buy houses, et cetera. But, you know, Veronica and I have done nearly 250 episodes here. What we're highlighting is that just, just getting a property is not always the best option. Mm. Maybe not buying. Maybe looking at topping your super up. Maybe just paying down your mortgage. Maybe, you know, start going into shares. You've got other strategies. Property is not the only way, especially if you're not going to get something quality. I think on the unit thing, there's also a, a bit of a myth that you can never make money on units or that all units are inferior to houses. And this is a bit of a problem, I guess, with this episode in the sense that we did talk very heavily on land value. And yes, land is what appreciates and the building is what depreciates. However, not all units are equal and also historical buildings have scarcity. And so like an Art Deco apartment, for instance, you can't build them anymore. They don't build them like that anymore. They don't have those period features. They don't have those few apartments on the big block of land. Uh, so you've, yes, you've got land value there, but you've also got a value in the scarcity factor of historical buildings. And same with warehouse apartments. You know, if it's a, if it's an authentic warehouse conversion, mm. that's got scarcity factor. So there's actually, um, I believe, an appreciating asset in the actual building because you can't replace it if you knocked it down you're not building the same thing anymore and therefore you can't replace it just with a newer version of what's there it will lose some of that intrinsic value that actually makes that property really desirable so when you're looking at apartments there are lots of examples that i can show you in sydney anyway of individual apartments that have done better than houses some houses in same suburbs and that is if you gave me a budget of say and you, I mean, you're right, a million dollars doesn't buy you much in Sydney and we're almost out of it being able to buy you anything sort of A-grade in, in an in a area, in a sort of within the, say, 15Ks of the CBD, shall we say. Almost. There's like borderline in some spots. Um, so that door's about to shut. So you're absolutely right about that. Um, but if you gave me, say you gave me $1.5 million, in some inner city suburbs you can still buy a little house right? But in those same suburbs, if you bought a quality apartment, you will actually do better capital growth wise than a crap house. 
crap house with really bad floor plan, really skinny, really steep stairs, no chance of a bathroom upstairs or maybe only one one bedroom, you know, tiny plot of land, might be in a in a bit of a seedy spot. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to make compromise after compromise after compromise on, on a house for that sort of budget, even though it's not impossible. Uh, there are some people out there that when the people that say, oh, land is where the value is, you should never buy apartment because you should always buy a house on land. They're the ones losing in that, in that equation. So you've got to be very careful uh, with these blanket statements, and I guess we are the world of nuance here, the elephant in the room, <laughs> talking about all the anomalies. So I would say don't give up. If your budget is for uh, an apartment, don't give up. But, you know, when you're looking at a place like Melbourne or Brisbane where the massive oversupply has had an impact that's reverberated across the entire market, you've got to be even more careful than you potentially have to be in Sydney. But there's also some regional markets and bigger regional centres where you could buy uh, a house. So there are other options. You just have to be super, super careful. And it's not true that all land close to the city makes good investments. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the putting a Sydney hat on, you've got to think that as – house prices get too expensive. Mm. Um, people will look at, you know, tier one and tier two regions, you know, Central Coast, Wollongong, will even go to Newcastle or even go. But at some point they can't just keep travelling and travelling and travelling. Um, and that's why we saw a massive increase in those prices in 2020, 2021. And we're still seeing um, the portion of people that are getting very good flexibility and remote work and um, they're still looking at regions. I, I think they're almost getting a third wave um, of people who wish they did it in 2020 and 2021 are starting to come back and say, maybe I should reconsider this. Maybe this is my opportunity. I should, I could have, couldn't do it the last couple of years. Um, but that's not mass market. I think that are getting that remote work. I think it's, if anything, it's going back to the employer. Mm -hmm. um, but once that happens, let's say that is. But if you can't leave the city and you can't get a house in areas that you really want to live, then absolutely you'll move to, you know, making it work in apartments. Um, plus migration. If people are moving to Sydney. Um, from around the world, um, you know, they want to, when their family visit, um, when their friends visit from overseas, why do they move to Sydney? Because they want to live around the lifestyle, around the beaches. They don't want to move, you know, you know, 60 kilometres from the city. And so absolutely that demand, and they're used to living in apartments around the world. But where are they going to want to live? They're going to want to live in low density, um, in areas where houses are really expensive and in areas where just, just do nimbyism, they're not building more apartments. And so you just got to sort of um, understand that not all apartments are equal, um, but yeah, absolutely. In those markets, um, just due to demand and supply, I think they'll do really well, especially with things like um, the stamp duty change that's likely to happen in the next six months. Um, you know, in New that, South Wales, in New South Wales, under one point five million, you can definitely get into top unit markets under one point five million, um, and then benefit from something like the stamp duty change. So, uh, hopefully, that was helpful. Um, but yeah, budget's really tough. You know, if you want to get a quality asset, you need a budget. And um, Veronica and I don't make any apologies about that because, you know, if you want to go to someone in the property space that will buy for you, absolutely, you could call up any broker or call up pretty much any most buyers agents and they just ask you what your budget is and they'll just go buy you something. They won't mm. really be thinking this big picture, what's actually going to work for you. And look, that leads into our second uh, question, which we've already half answered, which is from Lara, which is how can low income and single income families invest in property when buying in blue chip areas is out of reach? And I think that that focusing on buying a quality asset is 100%. And so it doesn't have to actually be a blue chip area. And I think that this is a thing that 
you know, I guess it comes down to what's your definition of a blue chip area. So people might think, oh, the eastern suburbs of Sydney is the only blue chip area, right? Because you might say the, the inner west by comparison isn't blue chip. And however, people have done extraordinarily well investing in the inner west. So yep. I guess that concept of what's a blue chip area, you could call, um, you know, you could call Palm Beach a blue chip area, but people t- typically haven't actually done very well in terms of investing in property in, in that area. So really, I think there are plenty of non blue chip areas in that typical sort of sense of blue chip that do make very good investments. I think the importance though is getting those fundamentals right of the location. And that is that you need to have good employment opportunities where people can earn good incomes or can commute and earn good incomes elsewhere and, and do that work from home slash commute. You want, also want a diverse population. So you don't want just one demographic. You don't want just retirees or you don't just want first home buyers. You actually want a diversity of um, age groups, family um, uh, makeup incomes, all that sort of stuff. You also want good lifestyle and amenity and also no oversupply. You've got to be very careful that uh, if you're buying into an area that is not uh, landlocked effectively. So one of the reasons the inner city areas have done so well is because there is just an absolute scarcity of supply of land and you can't make more land. So in order to get more land, you've got to go further out, which means further away from all those amenities, that a longer commute, all those sorts of things. So if you can find those sort of you can mirror that or mimic that in in nice solid regional towns where you've got all those other factors then you know you can get some good investment opportunities well and truly outside what might be typically seen as the blue chip areas yeah i mean the reality is the lower your budget the lower options you've got or the smaller amount of options you've got um and that's going to push you to certain pockets and you're going to start to face more issues around um the type of demand um, you know, that who can afford to live in that area, who want to live in that area from an aspirational point of view. You're going to open yourself up to supply because you're going to be forced to more apartments and units and townhouses versus houses, et cetera. So it, it is tough, you know. It is tough in that sort of one income or, um, you know, because if you times that income by five, um, that's how much roughly you could borrow, you know, and, and that's tough, right? So if you're on $60,000 a year times five, 300 grand, mm. well, you know, where are you going to buy something for 300, right? You're going to have to play in these markets. And unfortunately, you know, you're going to take the most risk for probably the least return. Um, and so you're actually the one who's probably the most vulnerable of making a poor decision. Um, you might buy a studio apartment on a busy road just to get into the market. Then five, 10 years later, you try to sell it, you sell it for exactly the same thing. Um, then you've got your costs and you've, you know, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it is tough and that's that's the reality. And, and so what you do need to do is try to play it a little bit smarter. So if you are going to play in those markets, you you try to buy on a better road. You try to buy the better one in the block. You try to buy in the pocket where not, they're not building anymore and got the best. So in that marketplace, you get the best asset you can possibly get, the most scarce asset, the most desirable to as most markets as possible. Um and um, and obviously something that you can obviously live in long term and give you stability and security and, and other things you need rather than just capital growth. Yeah. Otherwise, there are other investment options and it might mean not borrowing money and just sort of chipping away at, at investing in something else. And, of course, we're not able to give you investment advice uh, on this podcast. Yep. We can only talk about properties but and you need to seek out that advice. 
But there are alternatives and a lot of people just think that it's property or bust. You know, I like property because I can drive past it. You know, even if it goes down in value, it's still it's bricks and mortar. I can see it. You know, I don't understand the share market. Or I don't understand, you know, bonds or I don't understand whatever it is that I also might be able to invest in. But I think it's very worthwhile understanding the risks associated with just buying one property if you can't buy a good one. Yeah. And I would always encourage people to go out there and research other alternatives. Our third question is from Stuart, which is, thanks for your excellent podcast. Thank you very much, Stuart, which I've been recommending to every single person I know who is considering buying real estate in Australia. We love you. We all know about some of the design choices from homes from previous eras that notably date the house in a negative way. Pastel orange green bathrooms from the 1970s, tiled kitchen countertops from the 1980s, glass bricks from the 1990s. Oh, yeah. The question is, uh, what are some of the design trends of today, the 2020s, that people should think twice before incorporating to their houses? And um, so he said that through. He said he, he suggested we could talk about trends uh, about the physical layout of the house, such as unipurpose media entertainment rooms, or trends to do with decoration of houses, such as a current trend to paint rooms with black walls. No need to read out this paragraph, he says, but I didn't <laughs> think it was worth reading out. Right. Um, I think one of the things that I see a lot um, – is black taps, right? Now, black taps date big time and taps are actually quite expensive. Um, And so when I – it's like when I look at a house that's got um, black granite bench tops and beach cabinetry, right, I basically go, that was built in 2000, you know. (laughs) There's there's certain design trends that you can go, bang, I know exactly when that house was built or when that kitchen was done. Um, so I guess there's those that carbon date a, a property and then there's those that really render it really, really out of touch. And I think the, the reference to the glass bricks of the 1990s for me is a classic and angled rooms. The 90s angled rooms are a nightmare. You basically have to gut houses to renovate them. You can't just work within an envelope. Mm. And so I think I look at those things that are structural. The black taps you can replace, but the things that really do – mess up the flow or and honestly diagonal diagonal shaped rooms uh, diamond shaped rooms that 90s have a lot to answer for currently i see a lot of rounded um corners mm. and i wonder about those yeah it's actually a really good point right the curves are mm. so in fashion but you know are we going to be regretting those um in the future i think the color bond um explosion with you know the add-ons to the boxes uh, at the back yeah <laughs> and i just i feel like they were cool but i feel like now they're just they're looking a bit dated um and you know like you've got a beautiful heritage frontage and then you've got this color bond sort of extension at the back and so i just feel like it's it's not aging anywhere near as nice as the front and i i just wonder whether you know better materials could be used on these extensions and everyone's doing it as well so i feel like it's losing that sort of real uniqueness to it as well so i would say that's something <laughs> the glass bricks are funny we actually um knocked out some glass bricks on our house because it was making the place look quite dated but god they were solid um smashing those things up um mm. and put a new window in some louvers and yeah absolutely it changes um the thing so i would say that um the only other thing i'd probably say maybe is it is it too much open plan like you know, these the, everyone wants this open plan, the kitchen, dining, the lounge room, and COVID sort of um, sort of highlighted that maybe we've gone too much open plan. Maybe we need these little sanctuaries, these little areas where, you know, a house um, back to, you know, separate living areas a little bit. I don't know. Maybe that's something that I think maybe we, we're shifting back the other way. But um, 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I guess it's just what you want to do is appeal to the most markets as possible. Um, mm. You know, when we were doing our renovation, my heart um, and my confidence level was, you know, just keep this quite neutral, right? You know, light oak floors, white walls, um, keep the kitchen quite minimal because it'll appeal to the most people um, and not get too excited about using colour and everything like that um, because I think you can definitely, you know, minimise your market if you start putting you know, really bright bathrooms and things like that. will either people love it or hate it. Um, and it's just maybe a bit too risky. So you've got to be careful. Um, are you renovating to sell one day or are you, you're renovating it for yourself? And if you are, you just got to be careful that you've got good taste. That, that's the good taste is always very interesting. <laughs> you know, the thing that, um, like for instance, currently engineered floorboards. So you just said oak floors. I'm guessing you've put engineered floorboards in if you, if you've said that, um, well, yeah, to put proper timber floorboards in, I mean, over a big house, it's, yeah, I mean, I guess it's hard to, you can do like black button, you know, we did look at that, you know, well, you don't like engineered floorboards? No, I don't, I don't, and I think they'll date, and I don't think they, they, they don't wear as well either, and I've seen them on, on stairs where they basically delaminate on the edges of the stairs, so they, if you're not very careful with those, those floorboards, they, they wear very badly, so that's, that's one thing that I think a lot of people put them in, and I know they're not necessarily cheap either, um, but I do think that they are, are problematic. Uh, interestingly enough, I have a colour bond box at the back of my house. <laughs> <laughs> and me along with everyone else. I, what I've been noticing though are colorbond blocks on top of, on boxes on top of apartment buildings. That's mm. been of recent years. That seems to be that the you know three or four levels of apartments are brick, and then on top of that is is a um, a sheeted uh, low weight, I guess, um, upper level. I wonder mm. how hot they are. I really do because, I mean, I've got lots and lots and lots of insulation in mine, but mine was specified by my architect to me, you know. Um, I wasn't a, didn't buy it off a developer who may not have invested in the same level of insulation that I've in, uh, invested in. Mm. Um, and I think, too, the open plan thing is a really good point. When I first started in real estate, everybody wanted open plan. We did start seeing a shift even before COVID. And I think partly that is when you've got very, very little kids, you want open plan. But when your kids get a little bit older, you want a separate space for them as they get noisier, you know, mm. and that they can actually be outside, you know, from under your watch, watchful gaze. So I think the value in having separate spaces has crept back in, certainly. And I think COVID... Um, has brought in, like, for instance, the home study, you know, yeah. that, that didn't used to feature in every floor plan the way it does now. But I do think also that that whole media room, that that entertainment, um, you know, the, uh, the, the what do you call it, the video room or whatever, I mean, that's there's certain um, project homes, I guess, that always have that included in their design. But I really wonder about how many families do you sit down there with the popcorn, the specially designed um, movie seats watching <laughs> the big screen? And the other thing that I notice a lot is the use of stone. So travertine, for instance, that, that would date you around about 2005, I think, and it, it was it's expensive stone. It was used extensively in bathrooms and some houses had it all through the living areas, but my God, that dates a property. And that's expensive to move. Like if you paint a wall black, you can easily fix that. 
a, a couple of extra coats of under, undercoat <laughs> <laughs> to get rid of the black. But you can easily fix that, right? Even yeah. even replacing the wall is easier than replacing all the floors in your house when they're travertine. So yeah. it's a matter of choosing um, materials if you are going to renovate that when tastes do change, the cost to change them is not prohibitive. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not allowed to do a renovation in our new place for a few years. So um, it's something that's always go through my mind, you know, what's what's the best way to do renos? And I don't think I've done a great job on this one. I winged it um, and, uh, you know, didn't really control the costs probably as well as I probably should have um, and probably spent money where I'm not going to see that money ever again, but some I've added, added value to. So it's, it's a real art and skill, I think, to be able to renovate really well and um, and to, to get the best financial result. Um, because you can always improve lifestyle by spending money on renos, but does that give you the financial return? And that's a, something you'll never know until you sell, really. Um, and it really depends on the market you sell at. So, um, yeah, I think these are good conversations for people to be thinking about. Uh, fourth question is from Jean. Uh, we are 55 years and nearing retirement. We have a property and a townhouse as an investment that really is my husband's super. We owe on each property. Our aim is that when we sell our townhouse, the money left over will be paid into our super. After getting an estimate from a few real estate agents on how much we could sell it for, we went back to the accountant to crunch the numbers. If the market could not reach what we need, we must hang on to it. We need to keep working and paying it off. Also, we got a bit nervous with rates rising. However, we've been assured that in the past we had it lucky and that the average is around 7%. I love that. They live in uh, regional Port Macquarie uh, that is always growing, so the investment is a goodie and so are our tenants. So after hearing what the accountant says, crunching the numbers, we will hopefully have more informed decision as to what to do next in terms of a plan. My question is this, can you have a foolproof plan or should it be revisited every, say, year? If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Well, I think absolutely you should be, you know, looking at your plan every year. I mean, Jean, I mean, I thank you for the question. I just probably want to be um, thinking this through a little bit. So you haven't got any soup because you've got your property and your townhouse. Um, I would think that, you know, if you're 55 and you are sort of working, I think you've you've really missed a trick there if you haven't been looking at your super and maximising your contributions and, um and really understanding, you know, also your limits around put, what you can put into super. I'd be just really conscious around all that. Um, I'd be really be careful just taking blanket numbers around the capital growth. Um, you know, the average has been 7%. Well, you don't, I we think don't they're buy. referring to interest rates, actually. Oh, okay. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. So you really need to be going on a, on a, in a townhouse. Um, I mean, I don't know in Port Macquarie. You know, you've just got to be careful what the performance of townhouses have been versus houses um, and where your townhouse is. And I think also that this danger of if the market's not going to give you a certain price, you've got to hang on to it. That's assuming that the market will give you that price in a time frame that's reasonable. This is a challenge that sometimes investors, um, they almost want the market to, to do what they want to do rather than the market being a market. Um you know, for example, I'm not going to sell out of the Aussie stock market till it's at 7.5. Well, 
you could be waiting a long, long time um, and maybe you're accruing an opportunity cost that you could be doing that money, i.e., if this townhouse is is worth 600, maybe that's a good price, you know, for example. That means you could put 300 grand into a share portfolio, which is growing for you faster than that 600 grand um, townhouse is growing. So um, just be really careful with that because you, you could be building an opportunity cost there. Um, I mean, absolutely, you should be uh, really thinking about your retirement if you're at sort of this age um, and really thinking through the benefits of potentially working longer. Um, I know this is not probably what you <laughs> want to hear, but one of the biggest issues with um, retiring is uh, A, the, this going from full-time work to not working. I think that's a big transition for people um, and sometimes it's better sort of slowing it down gradually. But also if you can stop accessing your pool for as long as possible by just getting enough money through income sources um, to cover your living expenses, just delaying that money, you know, a period till you start drawing down and it has a huge um, reduction in your sequencing risk. You know, in terms of if you get a big market for all longevity risk, which means you run out of money, you know, because you might think, oh, my life expectancy is 86. Well, you could both live to 95, you know, and so um, inflation costs could could get out of control. So just be really certain that, um, you know, you've got enough money when you stop working. The best way to do that is it potentially extending your income if you can in some form. Um, just even if you can just get the, the 20 grand a year tax-free for both of you just through some jobs um, has a huge um, impact um, on, on uh, you know, giving you better chances through retirement of not running out of money. So hopefully that was helpful, but absolutely I'd be looking at it every year and, um, and maximizing every year because things change. You know, the concessional contribution caps um, changed. For example, you could only put 25 grand in a year a couple of years ago. Now it's 27 and a half, you know. Um, you know, the government brought in this uh, retirement exemption to where you can put more money into super if you downgrade your house over and above the normal caps. Um, and so, yeah, things are changing on an annual year. Stock markets are changing. Maybe it's a, a good time to start to sell down your portfolio from 80% in shares to, you know, 50% in shares. So, um, or maybe it's not. So, you know, there's uh, definitely things to be reviewing on an ongoing basis. One thing that I would add in there is that, uh, you know, Chris is talking there about potential opportunity costs. So you can have opportunity costs if you hold a property that isn't that great and you could be doing other things with your money. You could also have opportunity costs if you sell a property that's actually going to do fine. It's just that yep. you sell out of it too quickly and then you've got less money invested because you don't have the borrowing anymore and also you have to pay capital gains tax on any gains. So so when you do that, you've got less money to invest effectively and so therefore your returns are going to be less. So it all comes back to do you have a really good asset. And so I know that people often think they've got a good asset if it rents well. Now that is not the marker of a good asset. Now at the moment, pretty much everything's renting well. And so everyone could think that every single property in this country is a good asset, but it isn't. The good asset test is, is this going to be easy to sell to a wide range of buyers, even in a crap market? That's that's the sort of litmus test for, have I got a good asset? Will there always be demand for what I have? Now, if you've got a sort of property that's got quite limited buyer pool and you have to be – it's hard to be honest with yourself about this question as yeah. well because most people don't want to go, yeah, well, I bought myself a dud asset, particularly if you've only got one investment property. You don't want to be thinking, I shot myself in the foot because I didn't know what I was doing at the time. Yet, can I tell you, most people do because it's easier to buy a crap asset than it is to buy a good one. So – by really looking at and, and asking yourself those hard questions, and it might be that you need to do a bit of research here to really just look at, well, 
how have the other, if it's a townhouse, you can actually look at the performance of other townhouses in the same complex. That can be quite informative. And you can say, start doing a bit of research, get into the sold section of realestate.com.au and start saying, right, well, what did the last one sell for? Can I see other properties that sold over that same period of time? And have they done better or worse or the same? And if you can start building up your market knowledge in that way, you can start to get a better sense about whether your property is likely to perform well or not. And and that then, as long as you don't force to sell for financial reasons now, um, that then can inform whether or not you choose to sell. The other thing I would say too is that when you buy, we often talk about this, people try to time the market and be, try to be real clever about it. And, oh, I bought it at the bottom, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, you know, we've talked about this so many times. It's impossible to pick the, the peak or the bottom of the market. When you buy is absolutely not important compared to what you buy. But on the other side of this whole equation, at the end of the, the property lifeline, if you like, lifetime, um, when you go to sell it, that is important, you know. So if you have discretion mm. over selling, um, then, yes, it's always better to wait for better market conditions unless you've got an absolute dud asset and you could be doing other things with that money in the meantime. So hopefully that all helps. I think they're really good points, Veronica, I think especially around um, because if that's what your asset base is, your house, your townhouse, et cetera, um, when you sell, will have a huge impact because you finally crystallise mm. that. And also, you might be working now, so your your investment property, you might pay less tax if you sell it when you're not working in terms of capital gains tax, um, and so you can play into that. Maybe you might want to sell them over different years, especially if you've got multiple properties, um, etc. So, yeah, absolutely, you want to be careful when you sell, uh, but not get too greedy with it because people who, for example, mm-hmm. would have thought last year is a great time to sell. Maybe we'll wait till next year so we get a little bit more growth or, you know, a bit of a reality check, right? And then maybe they missed the market earlier this year, et cetera. So things can turn pretty quickly. Um, and so what you want to be doing right now is de-risk your retirement as much as possible. Uh, we've got a question here from Jess. Um, she says, I'm not sure if you've covered this. I've tried to check your back catalogue. So that's pretty diligent. So we have to <laughs> ask this question, right? She said, I'd love to know your thoughts on buying a block of flats in an A-grade location as a combination of investment and your primary residence, perhaps joining two to make it more livable for a family. I have a friend who has done this, six units on the beach in Elwood, beach views and a huge backyard, Airbnbs, rents, the rest. What are the pitfalls of combining an investment with your primary residence? It appears to her she's saying living where you want yet having the security of yield to support you long term uh, she says my friend is now happily living exactly where he wants albeit not in a traditional house but the aspect and views are spectacular the backyard is huge and his children have apartments they can move into in the future am i missing something is this a terrible or a great idea i understand it's not ideal for capital growth but isn't this strategy as fast-tracking getting you into your favorite suburb creating an income stream and securing a property for your kids in the future too so there's a lot in this one, and it's a very European thing to have a family consortium effectively buying uh, a building and having multiple generations living in the one in the one building. What are your thoughts on that, Chris? So I'm not sure if he's uh, done this all by himself, um, or with the friend, or, with, or mm. yeah, or with somebody else. But let's say they've done it all by themselves. Buying six units in L would probably would have cost three and a half yeah. mil, if not four million. And so the decision here is do we buy a house on a standard block in Elwood, which you should be able to do for 3 or $4 million there, um, or an apartment block? Um, and, yeah, I mean, the benefits of the apartment block is maybe you get um, four of the six you can rent out and you can get a bit of, um, you know, income there, but you have to pay tax on that. That means you're also getting t- only a third of the capital growth tax-free. 
Um, mm. And, you know, maybe there's benefit if it's a block of six in Elwood, maybe there's benefits of owning the whole block in terms of being able to knock it down um, and build 20 apartments. Maybe that could be a benefit of owning the six, um, which we're not factoring in here. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I personally be thinking in my head, am I getting three or four, if I'm spending three and a half million dollars in Elwood, could I be getting three and a half million dollar a better asset for that from a capital growth point of view? Um, and then discounting the rent, you know, because there's a lifestyle benefit there as well. And saying if I've got four places for rent, what am I going to make really after tax on that? Um, and is that benefit um, outweighed by the paying extra CGT? Um, and then potentially if you wanted to, one of the benefits of owning the six is that you could potentially, if you do need money, sell down one of the six, right? You can't mm. sell down your house. So that would be a, you know, as you get closer to time, you just keep selling off the apartments. Um, I think, you know, buying it for the kids to move in one day, I don't really like tying uh, financial, you know, buying assets for the kids, you know, in that building because, you know, then if the kids want, don't really want that asset, they want to have something else, then they're going to have to sell it. Um, I mean, buying something for them to move into rent, that's a, you know, I would say that you can just get rent something else. Um, so, <laughs> What if I the kids I, don't want to live there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's what actually happened. People think, oh, the kids, when they get older, they're going to want to live close to mum and dad. Well, you know, when you're a kid in your 20s, you don't want to live close to your mum and dad, right? You want to go and uh, explore the world. Um, you spent 20 years living with them. Um, so I'd be, I, I think when people are trying to do things for their kids, I would say try to just build wealth as a family, right? Get yourself mm. in a better asset position as a family so when they need help in the future, you're able to provide it for them rather than saying this money's for that and this because um, I think you could do better if you think that family wealth philosophy, um, you can make better decisions because you're not tying it to, you know, buckets of money to kids, et cetera. Um, so anyway, I don't know. I, I I would say it's also really difficult to go and buy a block of six. You probably yeah, be competing with developers, um, yeah. you know, to go on, and so are you paying a premium for that block of six versus over the market rate of what those six would be in the marketplace? And probably are, because you know maybe someone is thinking about you know doing a knockdown or a development or something, um, and maybe you haven't got the capacity to do that. Um, a lot of maintenance also in buildings like that. And uh, I think often people aren't thinking about what, what they're going to have to spend on an annual basis to keep, it, to keep it up to scratch. I think some people are very much hands-on investors, you know, and they really like to be have everything within the hand, you know, arm's reach. And I guess a, a very hands-on investor would love to control their asset in that way. And obviously, and I think Airbnb, if you're not going to outsource it to someone like, you know, Kieran, yes, you know, and that costs a lot of money to outsource to, a, to an organisation like that. So Airbnb... It sort of does need hands-on management, particularly if you're that close. So for an in a certain type of individual, uh, it might suit really, really well. But I think there's a level of romanticism around owning a block of units. So I get it quite a lot yeah. of our clients come to us and go, oh, yeah, really like to invest in a block of units. And um, it's a bit like me liking to invest in old shops. You know, I don't know, I've got this thing about it. I've never have actually done it because I've talked myself out of it every single time. But I've got this romantic notion about owning an old shop. God knows why, you know. So I, I'm just as... <laughs> I'm just as susceptible to this sort of idea. So I always find, you know, usually when I talk to investors about the idea about buying a block of units, once you sort of start digging, you realise that there's this level of um, emotional attachment to staying together as a family quite often. And also there's sometimes this emotional idea about, I can get better if everyone joins in. And so you asked the question at the beginning, you know, does the friend, has the friend bought, bought himself or has he gone into some sort of um, consortium mm. with 
other people in the family. And and I've spoken to a number of people who have had this idea of, well, we'll all join forces and then we can all as a, as a group buy this block of units. Um, I think it's fraught with danger if you're going in as a consortium, and unless it can be strata titled easily and you can sell out of your assets. So there's, there's a lot more pitfalls, I guess, in the structuring of it in terms of how how it's being financed and how many owners are going to be taking part of it and also the expectations of what those individual units will be used for and how they're going to provide a return. And and I think there's a lot of really crap buildings out there as well, you know, in apartment buildings <laughs> that um, – and really uh, – you know the renovate the renovation works might be way more extensive than you might ex- expect as well in these sorts of buildings because everything has to be multiplied by six or however many apartments are in the in the building. So there's a lot to consider. Um, it's not an outright no, I guess. A lot of it depends on location and personal circumstances and the type of investor you are. But I would think most people, it's just a romantic notion. You probably should move on from. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just really thinking through. I mean, to buy six units in Elwood, you probably, you know, I've just looked on here, there's actually a block of eight units, for example, now it's mid threes. And for mid oh, threes, you, you could you could get um, absolutely a, a decent property in Elwood for that. I've just looked at houses that have sold as well. So, But you wouldn't have head. the offset, the income from the units to offset your cracker house that you're buying. But I guess yeah. in, the, on, in the long term, when you sell it, you don't have to pay capital gains tax either. Yeah, so you could probably do the numbers on that. So you'd probably, you know, let's say you're renting out each apartment for 600 bucks a week, probably a bit optimistic, but let's say it is, they're two beds. Um, that's 3,600 a week. If you times that by 52, it's about 190,000. If you um, discount that by 20%, that's like 150,000. Uh, and if you times that by five, that's about 750000 of your capacity. And so, yeah, you're getting rent, so it's allowing you to borrow more money, but it's only borrowing an extra seven fifty. dollars mm. uh, You still need a lot of income to go and buy $3.5 million a unit. So, you know, you're still going to have to be on $500,000 a year probably, if not more as a couple. Mm. So, um, yeah, and I would just say, well, look, for that extra seven fifty, is it worth going down this, buying a, a different, um, having to pay capital gains tax, having all the issues of having uh, less space and having the lifestyle compromise of having um, a living in apartments and trying to join apartments is weird. You know, <laughs> how do you put your bathrooms at different edges in your kitchen? And I don't know, I don't think that, that idea really works in practical. You know, apartments are, you know, the, the floor plan's been built for that floor plan. hasn't been built so you could double it. Um, uh, I've seen it and- done and not often successfully, I have to yeah. say. Um, yeah. And I think too, you know, this um, the idea that you can sort of keep everybody under your roof, if you've got that type of family and it works for you, then great. But I don't think all families, the Anglo-Saxon way isn't that way. So potentially if you're coming from a cultural background that has that's more baked into your DNA, then it might be a really great option under those circumstances. All right, last question is from Andrew. Uh, it's a bit of a... <laughs> It's slightly unusual one. In Brisbane, Queensland, do they have bigger, wider roof gutters, downpipes to allow for the tropical rainstorms that they get up there to get the rain away quick enough? Also, do they have deeper gutters in the road so shops don't get flooded? Hope this made sense. He lives in Adelaide and we get such some decent rainstorms but not as much as the tropics and I get worried about roof gutters are going to overflow on some more severe storms. Now, I'm not sure if he gets worried because he's just generally one of those people who really worries about all sorts of things or he's thinking about going to Brisbane and he wants to make sure 
thought that when he goes there, the water can get away. But it made me think of um, episode 228 with uh, historian Margaret Cook where who wrote that book, um, Brisbane, a city with a – no, it's a river with a city problem. Um, and I did do a little bit of research on this in terms of building codes because they do vary depending on where you are and the, the sort of natural – the terrain and also the natural disasters that may or may not uh, be um, frequently – experience in different areas so you will have for instance building codes up in far north queensland will have there'll be provision for the fact that there's a lot of cyclones up there uh in bushfire areas you've got building codes where there's provision to any new building is um you know it has to be built to certain codes and certainly in flood zones absolutely that as well i guess the big issue there is that often older buildings are non-compliant under new mm. regulations. So things change all the time, but it doesn't necessarily mean that every single building uh, in an area that suffers these sorts of um, events is built to cater for them. And we're always, you know, learning new things. Like think about Victorian Victorian houses, the steep stairs. I've seen stairs that I reckon are about 45-degree angle. <laughs> and that abs- it's like climbing a ladder. They will not pass muster now. You wouldn't get those approved now. Yeah. In fact, you wouldn't get um, – and so those houses that might have two bedrooms upstairs – purely by virtue of the fact you could have such a steep staircase, now with the returns and everything that are required, you probably only get one bedroom in because of the staircase. So Mm. balustrade heights, you know, it used to be that you could have lower balustrades until people started falling off balconies and so then they raised the heights. Window openings in apartments, people falling through babies, Mm. falling through holes in through windows. Now that there's these uh, requirements to have them them shut or open, uh, restricted openings. So this... All changes constantly, and I would think that this and you know we're going to be experiencing that, and I think seeing changes in building codes continually, uh, particularly as we we suffer more from climate change. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's really important to think through if you had um, to know building codes because if you are looking to do a renovation, etc., um, and there is prohibitive costs. For example, our new place is going is bushfire zoned, right? And um, looking at past, you know, DAs and what they've had to do. Um, you know, putting on shutters that are way more expensive um, mm. and have to be on all the windows. Um, and, you know, there's like one right now I'm look, I've been tracking as well. They wouldn't be able to get the balcony approved they've currently got. It's like a wooden balcony. Mm. doing an amazing reno, like top notch. But they've had to leave this wooden balcony and they can't really touch it, to be honest, because then it looks like they're just renovating it because it wouldn't get approved today. Uh, mm. So it's beautiful reno, but then they've got this old balcony on the front, right? Um uh, and so, yeah, I think this whole building code thing is is a bit of an issue, and I think it is going to be get more and more to you know to consumer trying to be safer, etc. So, um, yeah, thanks for the question. I didn't do any research, so I'm glad you did. <laughs> oh, there's a bit more actually because um, there's infrastructure, right? He mentions the guttering, right? So, uh, or the um, the drains, they are in- infrastructure was designed around understanding and local conditions. Um, at the time and then upgraded over time. So more recently developed areas would typically have better drainage than an older area. Um, and so you'll see retrofitting programs. There's a retrofitting program on, on water pipes just in a couple of streets away from me at the moment because, I don't know, they've been supplying us with our drinking water through these hideous old clay pipes and all sorts of crap in them. And now they've got these brand new pipes going in to upgrade our drinking water. So, And there's such a thing as a, a national construction code 
Um, and then that's overlaid with state-based regulations and then local councils have development control plans with specific requirements for flood zones. So I think the long answer for your short answer, uh, short question, Andrew, is that yes, they do, but you're going to find more in the newer developed areas and newly renovated areas than you would find in the older um, established areas. It's a, a work in progress, I would think. So, Veronica, right. have you got a uh, property Dumbo to finish us off today? Oh, God, there's always so many, and now I, I didn't come prepared. Have you got one? Oh, I would just say at the moment is is that if you think about from a buyer's point of view is that what else would you want to go in your favour, um, especially <laughs> if you're in a situation where borrowing capacity is your friend. You've got a lot of borrowing capacity right now. Um and so you've almost got no, all your competitions struggling with borrowing capacities. They're all fearful. They're all worried about rate. The media's kicking up a storm. Vendors are really nervous. Um, you know, it's um, we can make an offer and they'll definitely take it to the vendor and they'll most likely consider it. Um, you know, what other market, if you could say this market in 2021 or 2020 or 2019 or even 2018 was so hard to get finance approval, right now it's really easy to get finance approval as long as you're haven't got a bad credit rating, really. Um, That's classic. So access <laughs> to credit's really easy. The perfect buying conditions, um, and everyone wants to sit on their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know the the danger is right now is the bargain hunter um, is is they do take action and they go and get a bargain because if things do get worse than they are, then the bargains actually get smashed even more. Yeah. Um, so if you are going to go into the market right now, the worst thing you could do. So we've also got the opportunity to buy a quality asset, you know. Um, and I do think that if you just are out there right now, um, your chance of succeeding on that is actually quite high if, if you can make solid offers. Um, and now's actually the time to use buyer's agents. Um, I know we use them a lot, but I actually think now if it is, is even more reason because what you want is that first access. You know, there's little quality access on the market. And, um, yeah, in hot markets, you should always use buyer's agents as well just to get that competitive advantage. Any edge is better than... Um, going you know property to property but i just think right now is you know it's really what else would you want in the marketplace yes you could potentially buy something cheaper in the future um and you know but you're you're if you're gambling on that you got to think what's the risk is if you don't and do you really want to be competing under busy open homes start getting back to auctions and then going god maybe we should, how much easier would it have been to buy last year um i just think that's the real risk at the moment with people who are in a very fortunate position, um, could come back next year and regret it, which we saw in 2018, which we saw in 2019, which we saw in 2020. Um, and I just don't want that to happen again for some of uh, for people out there just sitting on their hands too much. It's actually a really good point um, because when it runs, it runs very quickly. And yep. so, for instance, uh, in beginning of 2020, just before COVID hit, clearance rates were up in the 80s, like it was a very, very hot beginning into the year. So we were going to have a boom 2020 if we didn't have COVID. That was, that was absolutely on the cards. And people were saying to me, oh, you know, oh, look, oh, prices are starting to move and they're starting to freak out about it already. And I'm like, well, honestly, you should have bought last year. But you mm. didn't. So let's deal with what let's deal with what you know. But I can't. I've been through so many of these ter- these market cycles now. Every time one comes around, I'm like, yep, here we go, Groundhog Day. Everyone's going to sit in their hands. They're going to wait for the bot- market to bottom out before they actually get into it. They look for social proof, and then they'll all jump in when everyone else gets yep. off the fence at exactly the same time. And it doesn't matter. I could talk to them blue in the face. Same thing's going to happen. Um, and so I don't waste too much energy now trying to convince people. You know, I'll tell them 
just I'll give them case studies and all that sort of stuff, but I I don't get frustrated trying to convince people anymore like I used to in previous years. But I tell you what I will give you at Dumbo. Actually, now I've thought about it while you're talking about that because you said, look, good time to use buyer's agents. And absolutely, one of the benefits of using a good buyer's agent, yeah. and there's unfortunately a lot yeah. of crap ones out there. Yeah, so finding a good one is somebody who really understands that local market so well that they can identify that A-grade property and save you from accidentally buying a dud, yeah. right? Yeah. Because if you haven't been in that market day in, day out, you're not going to know. And also there's less property on the market in a downturn. So therefore, even then you've got less to sift through to understand really what's a good one, what's not a good yeah. one. And so the challenge in a hot market is that people pay overs for everything. And so my argument in a hot market is if you're going to pay overs and you have to, to buy a property, make sure it's a good one. Don't pay overs for dud, right? There's a real benefit in using a good buyer's agent who will help you work out what's the difference. In a slow market, you're in danger of buying a dud because of the pure ab- absen- uh, the absence of good properties. Yeah. And yeah. so being patient and knowing to wait because that's not good enough, that's really where a great buyer's agent will help you mm. and to hold you back from the impatience of, but there's nothing on the market, I'm just going to have to buy something. And so there's a different type of FOMO that can kick in when you're trying to find a property once you've made your mind up, once you decide to commit to buying a property, and then you find there's a dearth of of listings to choose from, you're going to you know, human nature can quite often start making compromises just to get into the market, even though it's not a hot market and there's not FOMO in the other in the other traditional sense. The big Dumbo I'm going to point out here is because I've actually been running a pilot program. It's a mentoring program for new buyer's agents. And I've just in the middle of running this pilot program and it's been fascinating. I've been distilling my over 22 years of experience now into these modules and then working on implementation programs so that these we can create a batch of great buyer's agents rather than the proliferation of very, very ordinary ones that are out there and that have come into the market and flooded into the market in recent years. You know what the Dumbo is though? You can get your buyer's agent's license or your real estate license. You can be fully qualified, right? In most states, you can even set up business without having any experience, never working in a real estate agency or a buyer's agency ever, right? That's in most states, not all states. What happens is if you go and get your real estate license, as in most states, what you're getting is a real estate license. And so effectively, those license courses are designed to teach people how to sell property and to uh, be uh, property managers. They're not teaching you how to buy property. And so therefore, people coming out with qualification, able to act and operate as a buyer's agent, and they don't even realize they need to do due diligence. They don't even know. And it's an absolute revelation for them that in order to buy property, it's not just the flip side of the sales process. There's a hell of a lot more involved. And I guess it's only been when I've been sitting down to put together this material, you know, literally this week I've been doing the due diligence module, I've been horrified when I've realized the exposure that consumers have when they're going with buyers agents who don't know how to do due diligence. And this is a dumbo, not just of the individual buyers agents for not realizing, this is a dumbo of the system, you know, that you can actually become licensed and get all the way to get to become a buyers agent, set up your own business and not know the most fundamental due diligence that needs to be done. Horrific. 
Yeah, I think the um, buyer's agency world is going through a bit of a, a change here. I think if you were doing, didn't have the great experience and didn't really know what you're doing, it's going to be pretty tough right now, right? Um, and so I do think that the market's probably going to uh, do so. a lot of weed them out. Uh, <laughs> weed them out. I do think so. And I do, you know, we we see some amazing ro- results with buyer's agents, and we're really supportive. Um, you know, the ones that are that local experience and have mm. been in that market for a long time, etc. And you really need to. You know, differentiate between also we see what people are working with their friends who are new buyers agents or oh, family oh. friends and um you know and believing their spiel about how many properties they've got and all that sort of stuff and 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 just all of a sudden blindly just thinking the friendship or the family relationships is the reason to use them and so just be very careful who you in and it sounds like i would um, i'd be interested to do that buyers agents course as well well, I'll let you know when it's at the evergreen version is live. And if anyone is interested in becoming a buyer's agent, by the way, you can jump. I've got a Facebook page. It's simple as jumping on it. It's called I Want to Be a Buyer's Agent. So just jump in, join the group, and you can join in the chats. And if you want to know more, I can tell you more in that space. Awesome. Great, great conversation, Veronica. We'll talk to you all soon. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.